If you'd like to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through to 38. And um, whilst you're looking, my wife asked me today to do Bible reading for, for her, and I thought that'll be fine. I'll just um, rock up and have a look. And as I opened the passage just before prayer, I thought to myself, I've been stitched up here. <laughs> so if you'll bear with me as I try to cite where uh, some names in a rather foreign tongue. And that was just a little bit of filler there whilst everyone found the passage. So unless I hear some pages rustling, I'll start. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Maath, son of Mattathias, son of Semyon, son of Josek, son of Jodah, son of Joanan, son of Risa, son of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adai, son of Kosam, son of Elmadam, son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of, Eli of Eliezer, son of Jorim, son of Matat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Melia, son of Mena, son of Mattatha, sorry, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Salmon, son of Nashon, son of Aminadab, son of Ram, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Aphaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. Well done. Uh, good morning, friends. My name is Chris. I'm part of the ministry team here. Uh, Theo, if you felt like you've been stitched up having to read that, I have to explain it. Um, so how about I pray for God's help as we look at this part of the Bible, because all of the Bible is God's word and useful for teaching. So let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for these, um, that this is your word. And as we've read, you've spoken to us. So please help us to understand uh, what it means so we may apply it to our lives and give us a bigger and bigger, uh, give us a bigger vision of what you are doing in the world this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was watching. Oops, sorry. 
There we go. A few weeks ago, I was watching a classic movie, Good Morning Vietnam, and in the film, Robin Williams plays a radio DJ um, during the Vietnam War, and there's a particularly striking montage as Robin Williams puts on the Louis Armstrong song, Oh, What a Wonderful World. The lyrics say, I won't sing it, don't worry. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. As the camera pans away from the studio, it shows the reality of the Vietnam War. There are pictures of horrific evil, children screaming, napalm destroying whole villages. And in the background, Louis Armstrong is singing, oh, what a wonderful world. The world is indeed wonderful. And there are many great things that humans can do. Yet at the same time, the world is full of horrific evil. It seems that humanity is caught in a cycle of selfishness, of self-righteousness and self-destruction. Generation after generation, evil and death continue, which poses the question, what is the hope for humanity? It's an interesting question, and let's be honest, from the comfort of our chairs this morning, it can feel very intellectual until it's staring you in the face. This is a picture of my friend Alex. We used to go to church together. Alex was a good kid. He grew up in a Christian family and went to youth group every Friday night and every Sunday. So I was surprised to receive a phone call from Alex's parents one day. Alex was in jail. He'd held up a number of service stations with his butcher's knives and his parents asked me to come and visit him. So in Parkley Correctional Facility in their visitor's centre, as I sat across, across the table from my friend Alex, I saw a young guy who had seen so much evil in this world and has done terrible, terrible things. I mean... What do you say to a guy like that? What do you say to friends who are struggling and suffering with sin? What do we say to friends who are enduring great pain? How do we find comfort in the face of death? What is the question what is the hope for humanity? In chapters and 3 and 4 of Luke's gospel, Luke, sorry, Jesus begins his ministry and Luke draws our attention to part of Jesus' identity that we sometimes forget, his humanity. You see, without Jesus' humanity, he is a distant and withdrawn God. He has no empathy for our prayers. He can't represent us on the cross and he can't give us any real or lasting hope. And so in this family tree, Luke shows us that Jesus is the saviour of the world who is fully qualified to deal with our deepest needs, sin and the judgment of God. And in doing so, he brings in a new humanity that gives hope to a broken world and hope to broken people like you and me. Jesus is the only hope for humanity. So let's start with our first point identifying humanity. 
One of my favourite comedians is Michael McIntyre. He has this bit about where's Wally. Uh, there's Wally, and I've circled him so that slide doesn't distract you. Uh, Michael McIntyre's kids love where's Wally, but the problem is they are too good at it. They can find him straight away. So he's taken a ballpoint pen and he's coloured over Wally in every page. He says, it's great. Uh, they're stuck looking for him for hours. He can go have a coffee. He can go have a lie down, maybe go for a walk. It's brilliant because Wally is just one of the crowd. And while the Bible never obscures the identity of Jesus... In Luke chapter 3, we see that Jesus is just one of the crowd. Have a look at verse 21. When all the people were baptised, Jesus was also baptised. As he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a physical appearance like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Last week we saw that John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord to come, and he said, the people aren't ready. You need a bath, that is, you need to be cleansed from your sin and you need to be rebirthed. You need a completely new life. And so those who are coming forward are essentially saying, we need God's help. But where is Jesus today? Well, he's heard the word of God like everyone else. He's standing in line on the banks of the Jordan River with everyone else he gets baptised with everyone else. He's just one of the crowd. He doesn't need to be baptised. He doesn't need to be cleansed of sin. He doesn't need to prepare for himself to come. But he's with everyone else. And in this extraordinary scene, the triune God shows up in all three persons. We have the Son praying, the Spirit descending, and the Father speaks from heaven. He says... You are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. And here we have two prophetic strands drawn together in the identity of Jesus. See, in one strand, Psalm 2, is traditionally a coronation psalm. God is saying Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the other strand is Isaiah 42. God promised a suffering servant who will express his authority through humility and obedience. And in humility, he will accept the mocking and the beating and shame. In obedience, he will take upon suffering and give his life as a ransom for many. He must identify himself with sinful humanity so he can atone for their sin and bring justice to the nations. And so this ordinary-looking man is doing what everyone else is doing and is endorsed as God's son. What's interesting is that this isn't the first time that God has used, uh, that the son of God has been used in Israel's history. Uh, in Exodus 4, uh, God calls Israel the nation the son of God. You see, the title son of God is a loaded term. We tend to think it only claims divinity, but Luke wants to push us deeper. He is saying that just as Israel, the nation, were sons of God, here is another person, another son of God. So the question is, what kind of son of God will Jesus be? What kind of Israel will he be? You see, if Jesus in his humanity is not humble, he will refuse to serve others 
with gentleness and love. If Jesus, in his humanity, refuses to obey God, he will give in to temptation and doubt the word of God. And if Jesus, in his humanity, as a son of God, gives up the cross to save his own life, we will have no salvation. Can you see what Luke is saying to us? That in his baptism, Jesus displays a tremendous act of humility. Jesus shows his willingness to identify with sinful humanity, the sinful humanity that he's come to save. And in taking on the nature of a servant, he will perfectly obey God, which means he's not a distant deity. He understands our sorrows. He understands our weaknesses. He knows what it means to suffer, and he knows how to help in our time of need. In his baptism, he identifies with humanity. But how do we know that Jesus won't fail at this? What are his credentials? That brings us to our second point, uh, redeeming humanity. Uh, when When we lived in Sydney, I used to love cycling around Centennial Park with my friends. One day I was at the back of a bunch of riders and I heard the guy up front talking about the Tour de France, you know, like he knew something about it. He claimed to know all these international riders. He was giving everyone his opinion, you know, one of those mammals that just thinks he knows everything about cycling. I thought to myself, oh, gee, here's another guy who really thinks big of himself. After the ride, I asked my friend, hey, oh, okay, we're going to wait, who is this guy? What makes him an expert on the Tour de France? He said, oh, that's Michael Tomolaris. You know, the guy who commentated the Tour de France for 20 years on the SBS. He had credentials. You could trust him. And in the same way, Luke goes to extraordinary lengths to show us Jesus' credentials. Have a look at verse 23. As he began his ministry, Jesus was about 30 years old and was thought to be the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph. We'll stop there. Theo did a much better job than I will. In the Bible, there are two genealogies, one in Matthew and the other in Luke. And there are three big differences. The first is order. Matthew's genealogy goes from Abraham to Jesus. But Luke's goes in reverse. Second, Matthew stops at Abraham, but Luke goes all the way through to Adam. And third, they have different names. So what's with the different names? Um, In my reading this week, trust me, there is a lot of writing about this. uh, I believe this is not a family of Mary versus family of Joseph line. Instead, It's a royal line versus a legal line. Let me give you three reasons why I believe this. First, the difference between Solomon and Nathan. King David had many sons. Matthew follows Solomon, the king who came after David. That's the royal bloodline. But Luke follows Nathan, which is still a bloodline, but one of legal inheritance and descent. Second reason. King Jehoiakim, or Jeconiah, appears in Matthew's gospel, but not Luke's gospel. If you go home today and read Jeremiah 22, you'll see that King Jehoiakim is cursed and therefore has no offspring. So he's still in the royal line, but he has no legal claim of inheritance, 
which explains why he's in Matthew's royal line, but Luke's legal line doesn't include him. Uh, Third is the grandfathers of Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, it's Jacob, as you can see. In Luke's gospel, it's Heli. This is the trickiest one, and there is lots written about this. Uh, My take is this, that if Matthew's line is the royal line, then Jacob is in the bloodline of Jesus, which means Heli is either Joseph's father-in-law or, according to Leverite marriage, uh, check out Deuteronomy 25 when you go home, Heli is either is a stepfather for the purpose of a legal inheritance. So if you've just blacked out, come back to me, why should we trust these two genealogies? I believe we can have confidence that this is still the word of God, brothers and sisters, because Matthew is focused on a legal, sorry, on a royal bloodline, and Luke is focused on the legal bloodline and inheritance. You see, the purpose of Luke's genealogy is to show a legal line proving that Jesus is the son of Adam. Just have a look at some of the names that we've got. First, you see David. In 2 Samuel 7, God promises that David will have a greater son that will rule the nations forever. So by saying that Jesus is the son of David, Jesus is fully qualified to be the Messiah. Then we have Abraham. Genesis 12 tells us that from the seed of Abraham, uh, that Israel will be blessed and through him, all nations will be blessed. So by saying that Jesus is the son of Abraham, Jesus is fully qualified to be the hope of Israel. And then the climax of Adam. By saying that Jesus is the son of Adam, Jesus is fully qualified to undo the curse of Adam and save all humanity. And this is Luke's point. In the genealogy, Luke gives us Jesus' credentials to prove that he is able to redeem humanity because of his family. This is a very special photo of me. It only happened once, ever. Four generations of holding men, it's me without the beard, or the tall one without the beard at least, Uh, in the same place at the same time, and no, we didn't plan on wearing blue. just happened. My family has blessings and curses, like many families. There's the blessings of my grandfather who survived the Second World War in a POW camp. There's the blessings of my father who started a small business that became a successful accounting firm. There's me. I'll let you figure out what that one is. Uh, But there's also some curses. Going back four generations... There's an uncle who was, while he was working as a farmhand, he tied up the owner of the homestead and his family, stole their money, stole a horse and rode it to Adelaide. Terrible. There was also, uh, one generation ago, a forbidden wedding that caused a family rift. Two sides of the family that didn't speak for 15 years. Family trees show many blessings and curses, and Luke's genealogy highlights the greatest curse, that is, the curse of sin and death, that all those who have descended from Adam are born in sin. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden tree, sin fuses itself to the human race, and all are born with a sinful nature. 
It's not that we are guilty for Adam's sin. Rather, because we are in the line of Adam, we have a sinful heart and will willfully choose sin over living God's way. I mean, this is why there are wars, poverty, sickness and death in our world. Humanity is not just one bad apple that spoils the bunch. We are all guilty of sin and we all fall short of the glory of God. So we're all part of the problem. In fact, as you look to the genealogy in Luke, it's a family tree of sin and death, a cycle that goes from generation to generation. And so we need someone who is both in the line of Adam but is also different to Adam. You see, like Adam, Jesus was in the image of God. Like Adam, Jesus shares this intimate relationship with God. Like Adam, Jesus is tempted by Satan. Like Adam, Jesus is tempted to doubt the word of God, but where Adam turns his back on God and his word, Jesus embraces it and obeys it. That's because he hasn't inherited a sinful nature. And so Jesus becomes this second Adam, one who lived a perfect life and was without sin. Jesus did not deserve the penalty of death, but took the punishment of sin on himself as he went to the cross. Jesus is fully God and fully human, perfectly represents us on the cross. You see, if Jesus isn't fully human, he can't be an acceptable sacrifice for our sin. If Jesus isn't fully human, he hasn't defeated sin and death. And if Jesus isn't fully human, then we're left alone, trying to earn our salvation through our good works and our own righteousness. And when we compare ourselves and our works to the standard of God, friends, we will always fall short. And so we need a saviour. We need someone to represent us before God and pay for our sin. And this is what we have in Jesus. Romans 5 puts it like this. If by one man's trespasses death reigned through the one man, how much more will those who receive the overflow of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Since Jesus is fully human and fully God, Jesus alone is qualified to redeem all of humanity and achieves this through the cross. He gives us his righteousness so that we may be forgiven by God and stand forgiven, cleansed and clean before him. For those who have faith in Jesus and repent of their sin, God freely forgives us, granting us new life now and eternal life when he returns. And so in coming to him, we receive new life and we're welcomed into a new humanity. Uh, And so as we think about this genealogy and this passage, uh, here are three things to consider as a way of application. The first is that God has not given up on humanity. At the beginning, I saw the striking montage of Good Morning Vietnam, pictures of horrific pain, children screaming, napalm destroying, whole villages, and in the background, Louis Armstrong singing What a Wonderful World. Humans are capable of great good 
and terrible evil. And as we look at the genealogy today, we're struck by a family tree that contains evil, sin and death, a cycle that comes back generation after generation. Yet God, in his divine plan, has chosen not to give up on humanity. Instead, he works through sinful humanity to accomplish his purposes. In his sovereignty and divine wisdom, he chose to carefully plan and direct history so that he may bring a saviour, so that he may redeem his creation and the world that he created. And God has a plan to bring an evil and suffering and death to a complete end when Jesus returns. You see, if God has been faithful in defeating sin and death through his son Jesus, then we can have confidence that he will bring this plan to completion. Friends, you can have confidence that God has not given up on humanity. And if God hasn't given up on humanity, second application, God hasn't given up on you. The family tree shows us, again, a life full of sin and evil, death and shame. But Jesus willingly steps into this and identifies with humanity. He understands our human experience. He knows what it is to have joy and sorrows and struggles. He knows what it's like to be tempted, to be tempted to doubt the word of God and to be tempted to sin. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by his friends and to be ridiculed for his faith. He knows what it means to suffer. He knows how to give us help in our hour of need. You see, Jesus being fully human means that God has not given up on you and Jesus walks with you in your suffering, in your temptation and welcomes you back to the cross. If God hasn't given up on humanity, God hasn't given up on you. And final application, then don't give up on God. Brothers and sisters, don't give up on God. At the beginning, I shared you a story of my friend Alex. We used to go to church together. He went to youth group every Friday night, church every Sunday, so I was shocked to be invited to visit him in prison. Uh, Alex did five years in prison for armed robbery. And over that time, uh, I had the privilege of meeting up with him and reading the Bible. Over those five years, he read the Bible cover to cover twice. He found... Uh, he, he returned to his faith in Jesus. He was welcomed back by God through faith and repentance. He found new life and on his release of prison, he found the new humanity that we have been promised in Jesus. Not just eternal life that starts when he, that, that's his when Jesus returns, but a new life that starts today. He found hope forgiveness and new life in Jesus Christ. You see, without Jesus' humanity, Jesus is a distant and withdrawn deity. He has no empathy for our prayers. He can't represent us on the cross and he can't give us real and lasting hope. But today we see that Jesus identifies with humanity. He is fully human and fully God. He identifies with Jesus with humanity in his baptism, 
In, gene, in the genealogy, we see that he is qualified to redeem humanity and bring an end, end to sin and death through the cross. And he establishes a new humanity, one that which gives new life through Jesus that starts today and lasts for the end of eternity, that gives us hope in the face of death, that gives us empathy in the face of suffering, that gives us strength to keep following him. Friends, God hasn't given up on humanity. God hasn't given up on you. Don't give up on God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you that in these words we find real and living hope in your son Jesus. And so we pray that in our times of need, in sickness, in sorrow, in suffering and even in the face of death, that you would cast our hearts and our minds to Jesus Christ so we may find new life and strength to live it in his name. Amen.